The Parliamentary Budget Office, I think, is the rarest of creatures in Ottawa because it's completely nonpartisan, responsible uh, for providing economic and financial analysis uh, to Parliament for the purposes of raising, I guess, the quality of parliamentary debate. It certainly is helpful to the public to find out what's going on. I mean, we can certainly all weigh in on how transparent the government has been. But I'll tell you, without the Parliamentary Budget Office, I think most of us would be far more in the dark. And the head of the Parliamentary Budget Office is Ijeru, as I call him, the taxpayer's best friend. He joins me right now. Eve, thanks for taking the time for us. But as I say, yeah, I, I can't say enough about about the work you guys put out and you know your whole team does put out that really does illuminate what's going on uh, whether it's uh, reviewing a project a major one like the Stellantis um, the Stellantis Volkswagen you know battery it's thank goodness we got a second set of eyes going in there just for the taxpayers sake and as you say your role is to help parliamentarians understand exactly what they're doing uh, during elections, quickly, uh, I'll just say uh, the parties actually present you with some of their platforms and you guys have a look at it and say, well, this is actually what I think it's going to cost mm-hmm. at that point. So, uh, again, thank you. I want to start right now. As it, and it just happened this week. Uh, Christia Freeling comes out and says, we're not going to give you the research. We're not going to release the research behind our decision to have the GST rebate. And... Uh, you know, I'll just say that's, you know, wow, okay. But that's not, that's one of many, many examples. And so I want to know, I mean, I remember when you, you went back, it's not, it's not long ago, but you said there was a problem with transparency. I think it was just in May uh, when you wanted the terms of that multi-billion dollar subsidy agreement with Volkswagen and Stellantis. And uh, again, it didn't seem like it was forthcoming. I mean, how are we doing in terms of that kind of transparency? Well, I, since I was appointed, I've seen a change in the government's take uh, or collaboration with my office. Certainly, mm-hmm. um, generally speaking, when I need information, I ask for it, and I get it. It may take a while. Sometimes it takes them a couple of weeks to go through the through the approval process. Generally speaking, I get what I need to do my work. The big exception is taxpayer information. I never need individual taxpayer information, but sometimes when I need to estimate the cost of certain measures, for example, Mr. Singh has a, a motion in the, in the House where big corporations that have uh, disproportionate pay for their CEOs would be forced to pay a, a surtax. Well, it's very difficult to get in, information from the CRA on these corporations because there's relatively few of them and they they are worried that by giving me that information i could figure out which corporations are included in that bundle of 100 or 150 mm-hmm. where the uh, the surtax would apply so these are like specific issues i'm faced with when getting access to information but generally speaking i get a good collaboration so the department of finance and the Department of National Defense are usually very good at providing me and my office with information. But I gather it's a whole different issue for parliamentarians and for journalists and the media in general. Like I often have discussions with journalists and they are telling me the access to information process is totally gummed up. Well, I'm going back to it. I think it was around this time last year. It was in December. Uh, that you were talking about that challenge, you know, uh, that you rated Canada one of the worst 
in concealing federal books from taxpayer scrutiny. And I'm wondering, have we made much improvement there? Does that, do they care when you make a statement like that? I, some people do care, but probably not enough of them care to make a significant difference. Um, for example, the public accounts. So that's, in a, in a nutshell, that's how much the government has spent in a given year. So it's looking backwards. Uh, the fiscal years of governments in the country, including that of the federal government, that ends on March 31st of each year. So normally you'd expect a big place like the government of Canada to be in a position to release their public accounts a couple of months after the end of the fiscal year. But uh, we've seen the public accounts being tabled very late in the fall, so November, sometimes even early December. This year, it was late October, if my memory serves me well. So still several, several months after the end of the fiscal year. Mm -hmm. But the current fiscal year started April 1st. So parliamentarians are in a position where they have been asked to vote on funding government operations in March, in April, in May, and June. But they have no idea how the government fared during the previous fiscal year. They don't know if there was yeah. a bigger deficit than expected, and they don't know how individual departments spent, how much they lapsed, how much they actually spent. So, and it's year after year after year, parliamentarians are asked, vote for these hundreds of billions of dollars to make government work. But nah, we'll tell you how much we did, how well or not we did several months later. So, there's a big lag in that, and it's not there. Not that there's a silver bullet to that, but the IMF, for example, the International Monetary Fund, suggests that within six months of the end of a fiscal year, you should be tabling your public accounts. Well, within, within that same thing, and again, it was about a year ago, uh, like almost literally a year ago, uh, the Department of Finance, you know, wasn't cooperating. There was like a $14.2 billion in unidentified spending that was in its that year's fall economic statement. And it hadn't, it didn't give any details whatsoever. And I think that's where it drives sort of taxpayers nuts. Like where the heck, that's a lot of money. Where the heck is it going? And, uh, you know, it didn't seem like much cooperation was forthcoming there. No, because in good part, it was probably, um, well, we can only make uh, assumptions as to what it was. It was probably mm -hmm. cabinet decisions that they were anticipating but had not yet been made or had been made but not yet made public. Yes. So they had to account for that somehow, and they lumped that together with maybe lawsuits that were pending for which there were, a resolution was expected in the not-so-distant future. So there are good reasons to not reveal everything. For example, you don't want to reveal to the plaintiffs in a lawsuit how much you have set aside yes. to, to make a settlement with them. Uh, but in other instances, it, it's a bit surprising to see that you're not disclosing information that should be disclosed and that you're, not, that you're having so much money in a set-aside for future decisions or lawsuits and so on. I'll give you another example. In the latest public accounts, there was one instance at the Public Health Agency of Canada for one contract which uh, obligations had not been fulfilled, $150 million that the government wrote off. Mm -hmm. And journalists picked up on that and they tried to get information only to be told, can't disclose, it's one contract that was not fulfilled, 
we lost the money we had made a payment we never saw the goods or services that we paid for so journalists had to repeatedly ask for the government to finally admit that it was a contract with a company uh, that produced vaccines that went bust during the mm -hmm. pandemic totally explainable but why are you just not saying it at the beginning when you're asked a question first there's no real reason to hide that and it's 150 million it's not pocket change. Yeah. And unfortunately, there's a few examples of that when we go back. Uh, I'm not saying in terms of they're not releasing the details, but there was certainly the government seems very reluctant to do sort of an independent inquiry that are happening in so many other countries about the pandemic response to see what did we learn? What if it happens again? All of those things. But it's it's at this point, we have not had one. And as I say, many other countries are are having that with the goal to learn some lessons you know and i would think when you're talking about contracts for 150 million dollars other contracts were, were let to without you know sole source contracts all of that there was stuff to talk there is stuff to talk about but uh, I, kind of interesting just you know i i was talking to uh, a senior liberal uh, been a successful politician this past week and his question echoed something that you wrote uh, you know back in april and that is he's wondering has has really the government lost control of its spending when you look at the growth in, in uh, employment all of those things are we getting the results for that but uh, his response and it just as i say it twinged right away i said well I, I remember when the parliamentary budget officer was kind of wondering about that have we lost control of our spending that's a very good question <laughs> okay one, one would have to assume that the government ever had control of spending mm. So, and there are people who say probably not because the initial promise was to have small deficits of around $10 billion. There were not that many small deficits of $10 billion since the election of this government initially in 2015. So, or the other point of view is, have they lost control? Maybe that's part of the plan. Maybe they, they didn't lose control to the extent that it is what the government really wants to achieve. Not to say that they want to spend necessarily like big time, but they are delivering on what is or are priorities for them. Mm -hmm. And maybe the deficit is just the consequence of that. So for, for the government, maybe it's, there's no problem there because the deficit is going mm -hmm. down compared to pandemic level. So uh, I'm not sure that if anybody in the government sees the state of public finances as a problem necessarily. Well, it certainly wasn't the case when so many people uh, coming out of private sector economists, analysts saying you need a fiscal anchor, you know, mm -hmm. give us an idea what your, your was. And I think they did that in March uh, and gosh, it was six weeks later, they broke it. And I remember, I forget what Chris, uh, Finance Minister Freeland actually said. It was something like, this is our line in the sand, that kind of thing. And it literally took about six weeks to, well, maybe that's not that clear a line in the sand. Yeah, and fiscal anchors seem to be flexible. I, yeah. I remember early in the pandemic months, the focus was pretty much on the debt service ratio. So the proportion of revenues, federal mm -hmm. government revenues that go to servicing the cost, the, the debt, sorry, so it was very low interest rates at record lows. We can spend. Then when that ratio started going up as interest rates rose, then the fiscal anchor or the discourse at least shifted towards declining debt to GDP ratio. And that was the fiscal anchor. 
And when that started going up too, then we shifted to lower, like decreasing debt to GDP ratio over time. And then in the last fall economic statement, a new fiscal anchor, deficits that are less than 1% of GDP, but only starting in 26, 27. That's after the next fixed date election. So when you have a fiscal anchor that moves over time, it, it, I think it erodes the credibility of said mm -hmm. fiscal anchor. Well, it, it certainly doesn't. This is, these are my words, by the way. It doesn't seem to be a priority. You know, I, I, I can name other things that are clearly, if you measure by what is said and how often it's said, that uh, other issues like climate change are a bigger priority uh, than certainly federal finances there. But I mean, I think what Canadians should be very aware of is, is the size of the federal government has grown. I mean, that also seems to be a political stance. So I'm not going to ask you to comment on whether that's a good idea or not, but it sure seems clear that the size of the government has exploded. Oh, yeah. Clearly, we've seen that uh, with government expenditures, the size of the public service as well, the number of, of employees in the federal public service, which has grown consistently. There were probably very valid reasons, temporary reasons for that during the pandemic. But once the pandemic is over, one would expect the number of employees in the federal public service to at least stabilize, if not decrease. Again, that's not happening. So it probably speaks to the priorities of the government to have a more important presence of the federal government in the economy and in society. And I but, think that's that's the choice before Canadians. And, yeah. and again, you're not commenting to, on whether that's a good idea or not, but uh, really I think Canadians have to be aware is uh, clearly the federal government has uh, a vision of a much more intrusive, a much more interventionist federal government. I've got a, a zillion examples of that. and. Uh, versus opponents who don't want to see a much bigger federal government. So, I mean, I think that's just lays it out on the table. But I think one thing that Canadians, uh, regardless where you stand on that, I would think it's uh, pretty reasonable to say, if we're sp spending more money, then we should be getting better results. Uh, and boy, I was looking at that report again just this week that you put out in May, the Parliamentary Budget Office, talking about cabinet really increasing, federal liberal government increasing money on Indigenous affairs and there didn't seem to be much measurable improvement in the actual services. No, when we, we looked at the performance indicators uh, from the two departments that primarily deal with Indigenous and Canadians, mm -hmm. uh, Indigenous services and Crown, Crown Indigenous relations, um, the performance indicators of both departments are not met about half of the time. So, and it's performance targets that they themselves choose performance indicators that choose and the targets that department officials choose themselves. So they set their own performance indicators and targets, and yet they're unable to meet them despite the significant increase in spending in these two departments. So it, it's really surprising to see that so much money is being, is being spent, not only on, the, you know, on Indigenous services, but generally speaking, and a significant portion of performance indicators and targets that officials themselves choose are not being met. And that's, that's seen across government, not every department. There are departments that are better than others, but generally speaking, uh, you have less than, than a two thirds of performance indicators that are met. Last time we checked, 54% of indicators were met for the last round of performance indicators that were tabled at the end of October or early November. 
so that's if if one is charitable, you could say sixty percent, depending on how you mm -hmm. measure measure that. But that still leaves at least forty percent of targets that are not met. Well, it's funny. There's a couple of things that come. I, I, you wouldn't have heard the opening comment today, but it was on the Environment Commissioner's report that Canada had shown zero progress. Uh, since 2015 under the Trudeau government on emissions reductions. And that was about the same what the Harper government did, but they didn't talk about it as much. You know, uh, his report last year said we were the worst performer in the G7. I mean, that's another example is, you know, a lot of money spent. What did we get in re return for it? You know, uh, and, and by the way, what you're saying, we just saw the BC ferries, uh, which has been really had a troublesome uh, last year or two with cancellations and unreliability, that kind of thing. And we get another report saying, well, one of the things they did is exactly what you're alluding to, which is all you have to do if you want to pass, just get lower targets. You know, if you want a good grade, just change the grading. And they clearly had done that immediately. I thought of your report coming out in May that said that's what they're doing. And then look at, I mean, come on, you've got 20 plus years in the public sector, more than that. But uh, you said it wasn't a shock to you in that. Not at all. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Uh, I, and I think that's all that Canadians want. They, you know, we can have a debate about how much, how much we pay in tax, where it goes. But I hope there's not a debate that we all hope it's spent effectively and efficiently, that we actually are getting something uh, in return. And, uh, you know, that's why it's so ironic that uh, your report last, well, it was March 222, I think. Uh, when you talked about the Canada Revenue Agency, it's one of the most expensive tax collectors in the world, but man, they didn't have, uh, you know, commensurate results with that. Yeah, uh, the, based on the results that they themselves indicate to other tax agencies, so it was, I think it was OECD data that we use, the CRA is average. So on some metrics, they're good. Other metrics, they're not mm -hmm. so good, but overall, average. So you'd think that with the system that we have, with the verifications that are possible with third parties, that it would be fairly easy or easy-ish to collect money. And that so CRA would be excellent. But no, it's not. And I've worked at CRA. I have a couple of ideas as to where mm -hmm. improvements could be made. And we have another tax agency that CRA can compare itself to, Revenue Quebec, which are... I think much more aggressive in going after uh, tax evaders, but I can tell you from having been inside, CRE hates to compare itself to Revenu Quebec because they don't like the comparison. Yeah. It's not always flattering. In some areas, it is flattering, but in some other areas, it's not as flattering. So they don't like the comparison. It's something you can do. Avoid comparing yourself when you're a monopoly. But when you have another tax agency that's doing good, mm -hmm. you don't want the comparison. Yeah. Well, and, and I'll come back to spending for a second because, I mean, that's where the parliamentary budget office is so essential to we get told something and then we find out from the parliamentary budget office receipt, uh, research, oh, well, this is what actually has happened. I'll give you an example because it's recent from your reports. But come on, the federal, the easier thing the government themselves talks about. It's not someone in the opposition or someone who doesn't like the government saying you should do X. I mean, I'll give you an example. We were supposed to spend less on consultants in the government. That's their thing. They said, we're going to spend less on consultants. The other one is we're going to spend less on travel. I've got an example of how that's not happening. But we're going to spend less on consultants. And then presto. Parliamentary Budget Office has a look and says, oh, guess what? 
we're 16% higher on consultants than last year's record. Yeah, so it's based on the estimates. So that's the process, the bills through which the government finances itself. And based on the estimates to date, uh, spending on consultancies and special services, so consultants and outside assistance, um, it's going up. It doesn't, that's the authority. So that's how much they'll have authority to spend. It doesn't mean they will spend all of it. They could mm -hmm. leave some on the table, but departments have the authority to spend a little bit more than last year. So if the government is indeed serious about reducing the use of consultants, they should have, one would have expected to use, to decrease the authority to ensure that this is binding, but they are giving permission for departments to spend slightly more than last year. Maybe there'll be admin issues and departments will end up not spending as much as they did last year, resulting in a real decrease. But what we are seeing is they have authority, authorization to spend slightly more than last year. So they're telling us we will reduce spending, but they're granting permission to spend a little bit more than, than last year. So we have to trust them. We'll know once the year is over, probably next fall, once they mm -hmm. table the public accounts. So we can talk again in a year, and then we will have found out whether they spent less on consultants or not. But so far, all the signs are there uh, ramping up to spend probably close to or as much as last year. I, I can't help but my favorite example is they, uh, thanks uh, to the work you've done, they paid 670000 that ballpark, to consultants for advice on how to save money on consultants. <clears throat> I didn't think that was a particularly strong plan. But <laughs> well, I, can't but, claim, I, can't, I cannot claim credit for this one. I think it's the media who uncovered Oh, this. okay. It, it's well, not me. So when I saw the headline, I couldn't help myself, but I yeah, shaking my head. There's probably somebody who didn't read the memo, but hey, it happens. It doesn't get better than that, though. 670. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not that dissimilar to their promise to cut travel. And then just this week, we got the report that in September, the prime minister and I think it was four photographers and other people, the big entourage, went to speak at a climate conference. And again, uh, I'm not asking you to comment on why they were doing or what they're doing it, but I think it's tough to cut back on travel expenses when that kind of thing's happening. And I, don't, I haven't seen any sign that there's been a cutback as promised. Um, me neither, but again, we'll see in a couple of months if mm -hmm. things have happened. Uh, I've commented tongue-in-cheek a couple of months ago that if all the exercises over the years and decades that promised to decrease spending, if all had been true, um, the Ottawa airport would be much, much smaller than it currently is. <laughs> yeah, as we say. But it, it's the kind of thing that, I mean, this is what Canadians want to know. They just, I don't think it's much to ask. Hey, I work hard for my money. I pay my taxes. What is it getting spent on? How effectively it is? And, and I want to come to one more thing before I ask you about your outlook as you look forward to what you're expecting from the economy and to interest rates, because you have an interesting call on when you think interest rates will finally decline. But just one more, you know, when I, when I look at that, and I just, as I say, I'm trying to chronicle the, the commitment to this, and I'm not seeing it at this point uh, with it. And I, I guess I'm just asking... Uh, you know, is, are you thinking that things are improving in terms of effective, efficient uh, spending, especially when I think of these monster outlays like we did with the subsidy for Stellantis, uh, for 
Volkswagen for the EV plant amidst an avalanche of news reports that EVs aren't selling. Uh, whether it's from the dealers, uh, that in fact the manufacturers are cutting back, which obviously would cut back on the demand. But, uh, you know, your report came out and, and described it was a little more expensive than what the government had suggested. Yeah, well, on, on this issue, uh, I've been accused of being against electric vehicles or ignoring the economics of electric mm -hmm. vehicles. And, and that's not what our report did. Our report just looked at the uh, the statement that some government ministers made that the spending on Volkswagen, that was the initial one, the spending on Volkswagen, government spending, would pay for itself in less than five years. And that was $15 billion or close to at the time in, in April. So we thought that's a bit fishy. So we, we, we looked at what the government itself had used to make that statement. And we debunked that. And we found that it's more like 20 years in the best case scenario. Well, I shouldn't say in the best case scenario, on an optimistic scenario mm -hmm. uh, where the production at the facility would continue at the maximum pace for these 20 years, which is, is hard to believe will happen. They often have to down tool and, and upgrade uh, plants of that nature. So, and, and we just debunked that statement. And then the government the federal and provincial government of Quebec, when they announced subsidies for the North Volt plant, they used our methodology. So mm. it suggests that we probably did something right when we said for Volkswagen, nah, it's not going to be five years or less. It's going to be more like 20. So they decided to take the same methodology as we use for the North Volt. So I think we, we did something right there for governments, both of Quebec and the federal to use our methodology. So I think it's useful for governments to have an independent oh. officer of parliament to keep them honest when they become probably a bit too enthusiastic. Yeah. And <laughs> your point about that, government spending and efficiency, I think it's in government dollars as in many other things. The more you, you feel you have, probably the more... Um, inclined you are to spend it. It's a bit like if you buy in bulk at Costco, you have these big bag of chips. It's much easier to eat lots of chips than if you have a small bag. I, I think the same analogy is probably true for government spending. If you're in a mood where there's a lot of spending, you're not likely or less likely to be very, very careful with every penny and ensure that it is spent as efficiently as possible because there is more of it that gets spent on the uh, conversely if you have very very few resources you want to maximize the mm -hmm. use of each and every single one of these dollars but when you are spending more it's more difficult to to do that and it's probably easier to lose track of the necessity to spend very very wisely well, I, I don't want to jump into the political pool on that, but there is a real challenge for government to spend effectively. Uh, again, uh, we can debate what we should be spending on and how much you know we should be taxing. But I think there's a good case to be made that uh, we haven't got the results that that we want, uh, you know, so far. But let me finish with this uh, quickly. Just the PBOs projected what they think the economy will do. Uh, you know, next year, but especially you have a target for when you think the Bank of Canada may start lowering its interest rates. So we released our economic and fiscal outlook 
we do that twice a year to give uh -huh. parliamentarians a nonpartisan and and uh, impartial point of view on the economy and federal finances. And for a couple of months, we've been saying the most likely scenario is not a recession. It's very close, so economic mm -hmm. stagnation, but no recession. So far, uh, we have been proven right. Uh, and when it comes to interest rates, we anticipate in our last outlook that the bank could start decreasing rates in April 2024. So that's what our economic model suggests. That's what the state of the economy so far suggests. It doesn't mean that it's exactly what will happen, but we think that economic conditions will probably warrant uh, rate decreases mm -hmm. by April. Will the bank do that? That's anybody's guess. If I knew how to perfectly predict the state of the economy, I would be much, much richer than I am. <laughs> well, I'll tell you though, looking at your reports and uh, and God bless them all at the federal, uh, sorry, at uh, the Bank of Canada, but your reports have been stronger in, in those kinds of things. And uh, I'm not trying to nail Tiff Macklin. He's a wonderful guy, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, uh, I'm just saying you, you should pat your guys on the back a little bit, your men and women who are working with you, because they've actually had a good track record. And that's why I sound, found it so interesting, your, uh, your economic forecast, uh, you know, projecting a weaker economy, nothing to write home about, but allowing the Bank of Canada to lower rates by April 224th. I got a lot of Canadians who are hoping you're right. But uh, you've been right on a lot of stuff from the Parliamentary Budget Office. And I want to thank you for your work there. As I say, our best friend is taxpayers. All we want is the straight goods. You know, and I really believe in people's uh, right to make a choice in terms of policy. You know, I want my money spent X. She, uh, she says Y. I really respect that. What I think is troublesome when the Canadian public isn't getting the facts, isn't and getting all the information, and you fill a, a very important void there. And thank you very much. And I'm I'm all for that too. And I don't I'm I don't pronounce on the merit mm -hmm. of specific policies, environment, economic, and so on. Uh, politicians get elected because they have a broader perspective than mere economists like me. And I've said that often. Uh, I'm not in position to make decisions. Mm -hmm. That's why we elected people so that they can take the public's mood, take the fearless advice of the public servants, but also take into consideration the public opinion and public mood, which I'm not, I'm not equipped yes. to do that. So, but at least they should be honest and provide us with true information. Yes. Well, I look forward to your next report and I want to say thank you and uh, Merry Christmas to you and your family. Much appreciated. Hope we can visit again in the new year. Uh, I hope so too. And uh, happy holidays and Merry Christmas to you too. Thank you.